Welcome to the Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast. My name is Christian. I'm head of company building at Porsche Digital. I'm Tim and I'm the co-founder and co-curator of the House of Beautiful Business. So we have this beautiful Next Visions podcast to bring together two beautiful minds and thought leaders who inspire us with their talk. So Tim, can you give us a little bit of an insight what the setup is? So let me tell you first a little bit more about the House of Beautiful Business. It's a global think tank and community with the mission to make humans more human and business more beautiful. And our goal is to connect a community of beautiful business change makers, really, who come from different sectors, science, mm -hmm. arts, business, policy, and then bring them together so they can explore more humane visions for the future of technology, business, and society. Once a year, we gather 700 of them in Lisbon, Portugal. This is mm -hmm. where we are right now. We're sitting in this beautiful library surrounded by all this collective wisdom of, of centuries, really, here, surrounded by beautiful books. And for five days, really, um, we engage them in all kinds of experiences and debates, but also very playful experiences. And one of the design principles of the House of Beautiful Business is serendipity. So mm -hmm. it's like these unexpected encounters meeting a stranger and being drawn into an immediately interesting conversation. That's very much the setup for this podcast um, series as well. So imagine you are at the house, you enter a room, you know the name of the person you're going to meet, you may have read their bio, however, you have not met them before. And there is also no moderator, as you find out. Mm -hmm. And so you're basically left with your own devices and you have to get this conversation going. And it's really, really interesting to see then where people go and, you know, how the conversation evolves. That is completely unscripted and unprepared. So the purpose of the podcast is to identify new perspectives, create next visions, so to say. So who are the two beautiful minds we're listening to? So one is Amy Whitaker. Amy Whitaker is a assistant professor of business and art at New York University. Uh, she's also the author of the book Art Thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting, you know, I think many people are now familiar with the term design thinking that has really arrived in the corporate world as well. But now there's Art Thinking promoted by Amy Whitaker. I do know Amy because we actually have the same publisher, the same wonderful publisher. And I've been following her work for many, many years. And uh, Massimo Portincasso is our second guest. He is in conversation with Amy. Massimo is the global head of marketing and a partner at the Boston Consulting Group. By the way, uh, BCG is a partner of the House of Beautiful Business and full disclosure, we're very proud to partner <laughs> with them. Yeah, and Massimo um, is interesting because he's always like really exploring the next frontier. So mm -hmm. he's very interested in, as you will hear, in, in poetry, in business, in deep tech, in science, in biology and how it applies to business, but also I think very much in art. And yeah, it's interesting to bring these two people together and see what they have in common or not. It sounds like an interesting combination, a top management consultant and an artist. Um, so I'm curious to listen now and yeah, let's do it then. Hi, Massimo. Hi, Amy. Here is Massimo Portincaso, partner at BCG, speaking with... Amy Whitaker, professor at NYU and author of a book called Art Thinking. Great. Your book speaks about art thinking. Do you think that design thinking died? <laughs> well, it's interesting. We're having this conversation about the death of design thinking in a room of artifacts, a beautiful old room of imperial portraits and paper mache ceremonial dog heads and Massimo and a couple of other people. I don't know if design thinking has died, but I think design thinking is a little bit asleep at the wheel of its life. And I think this because design thinking is so revolutionary 
and so important and so transformational, but it has entered into a corporate lexicon where it has been overtaken by an outcome orientation and an optimization orientation. So when you start with a how might we question and design thinking, you're often in a context, there's a lot of beautiful artistic speculative design thinking, but you're often in a context where you have to deliver the proverbial shopping cart to a corporation and you have to put things in a language where people understand the short-term value creation. So what I do in art thinking is I explode that out in two different ways. And one is to hold much more space for the messiness of art, for the feeling of being in a studio where you do not know what's going to happen and you're with the work, which is very vulnerable and you're in the weeds, like comically hardcore, like not sure what's happening here, but going for it. And then on the other hand, I think... We really need to apply creative and design skills to business models themselves in deeply rigorous ways that maybe Massimo speak to your background in engineering. Because we got these questions about art and design and Massimo's like, you're asking an engineer who works in your capacity. So I'm just curious, like, why you think that your work is not artistic? Actually, I was joking. Oh, sorry. Uh, Now I've offended him. No, no. (laughs) I'm, I'm totally fine with it. I think it's really important. I think you need to have both sides, and I think this is really important. I mean, if you start talking about art thinking, the one thing that came to my mind is just, isn't there a risk that company are going to start doing this and you're going to apply this messiness and so on, but then it's going to transform into a cliche and just the corporate piece, and then we're going to have the corporate version of art thinking. So it's not that we need to go one level beyond. So how can we prevent things really to to go mainstream and maintain the original thinking that was embedded in it. So that's... uh... I mean, I think this is a lifelong practice. Like, you probably know people, I know people who've had enormous success. They've had a book breakthrough or... And they have to go back to the drawing board after that's happened. And I think that energy is what keeps something from becoming a kind of corporate cliche. But I I mean, I completely relate to the question because it does happen. Sometimes you show up and you're like the art lady and it feels a little bit like you're the entertainment and you're not connected to the engineering structure of the business. And I actually think, and I do mean this as a radical idea, I think that the reason art thinking survives in a corporate context is that it's deeply embedded in economic forms of collective ownership and equity that break apart the platform business that characterizes our time, the Facebooks and the Googles of the world, and lets people cooperatively own their own data and enter into market transactions in ways that have not been possible before. So I think that art thinking exists, and if it can exist and continue to exist, it's also because the structure of the business is constantly changing too. I kind of lost you. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, how, how does art thinking translate to breaking the platforms and the ownership of data? I, I'm, yeah. I'm missing the so connection. Art, so the thing about art thinking is that it's partly about art and creativity, but it's partly about serious design of the business case. So I always say there are two forms of creativity. There's writing the letter and designing the envelope. Writing the letter is what we think of as art or design. It's like designing the product. And then designing the envelope is figuring out the business model around it. I do a lot of work on fractional equity. So I look at what would happen if visual artists 
retained equity in their work when it is first sold in markets. So Robert Rauschenberg sells a painting for $100. Instead of getting 50, he gets 40, and then he owns 10% of it. If you look at that as an investment portfolio, he and artists of his stature, so this is a cherry-picked example, but it's true for larger portfolios of people as well, he would have received a 20 to 40% return every year from 1960 to 2005. Every year. And that is what I mean when I say radical fractional equity models. So for example, I work with a company called Bitmark that is a blockchain company that allows people to register property rights. They're doing a project. I'm just trying to explain the kind of abstraction. I really appreciate your calling me on it. They're doing this project where people who are in medical studies, who are subjects in medical studies with a large R1 research university, instead of signing the paperwork where they give all their data to the university, they assert property rights to their own data, which they own collectively through an investment trust registered to the blockchain. And the fact that they own it allows them to be generous and to donate their data to science or to operate as cooperative market actors and to sell it to pharmaceutical companies. So I think if you can pixelate ownership structures, for example, we aren't, are not the product. We do not just grant our data to Facebook. We own it and their transaction layers. I think the kind of tech business model 3.0 involves a profound shift toward dignity and autonomy and ownership by individuals. So you get this, the reason art thinking doesn't die is because everyone is an artist or a citizen artist who owns their work in collaboration with other people. I don't disagree. I'm still struggling to see the bridge between our thinking and my data owned in a cooperative, in a blockchain-enabled business model. Yeah. And the way I was thinking, or let me, let me put it this way, let me, the way I'm coming to this, and, and one of the reasons why I definitely am going to read your book is just that I've been dealing a lot with the idea, for instance, of poetry and business and what the two have together. And the way we were looking at it, it was much less about the business model rather than that if you look at poetry and the way poetry impacts, uh, business is very simple. We're living in a world which is really characterized by increasing ambiguity, volatility, uncertainty, and so on, which has brought to our VUCA world, um, so to say. And in reality, the truth is that if you look at science, I'm not talking about the romantic vision of poets inspiring and, uh, <laughs> you, you know, Schiller and all the romantic vision of poetry. We're really looking at hard science view of the world. And there's been studies showing that if you do an fMRI of people while reading poetry, it really stimulates exactly that part of the brain that you use to deal with ambiguity and so on. So that's why I'm really making the point, really using poetry is one of the best way of training yourself to deal in this world or make sense of ambiguity. And the way I, you know, in a naive way was interpreting without having read your book, which is something you shouldn't do, but never mind, was, okay, art thinking is probably an extension of this. It's just like the way I'm looking at poetry and business, and maybe there is a way of looking and making sense and really use the creativity to generate something that leads you to a different place, to make better decisions, to make better assessment or come out with better even business models. So... 
Yeah, I love that. I mean, your work on poetry and business is amazing. I was saying I couldn't get into Massimo's session the other day. It was packed. But I think that, you know, there's a real affinity between what you just said and the way I think about art thinking, which is that it's about operating from question that matters to you. It's about the kind of orientation and groundedness and ambiguity in the sense of, I don't have a template. I don't know how this is going to go, but I am in my self right now. And my self is complex and ambiguous and has these high notes of creativity and these high notes of analytic thinking. And I mean, the core idea of the book is that if you're making a work of art in any field, you're not going from a known point A to a known point B, you're inventing point B. Mm -hmm. And therefore you have to invest in a point A world and you don't know value until the point B world. And so equity structures represent it better. But one of the things I love that you just mentioned is really about this kind of interaction of art and science. And I don't know if you would say this, but I feel like people often place a construct of leisure and necessity on those. Like science is important and necessary and rational and art, fine art, uh, which is part of the field I work in, is like paintings, drawings, people going to museums, like free time, nice to have. And I actually think that art and creativity is much more fundamental and much more linked to science. So like the, yeah, the f- I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I think that, you know, in age in which... Uh, big part of analytic part and where a lot of the repetitive tasks and things that has been defining for the existence of many uh, human beings are going to be taken over, rightly so. I think that other part is going to become more and more important. But apart from that, I deeply believe that this is a core element and component of what makes us human. So I completely agree on that. What is your own relationship to science and training as an engineer? Kind of what do you remember from when you first got into that that still comes up now in your job? Going down to first principle. Exactly. That's yeah. that's the one thing that I really totally. learned and just really going down to first principle and operate first principle. The more the world go- becomes complex, the more you have to rely on first principles. And this is uh, what I'm bringing back from my engineering background. The way you apply and the way you deploy it can really depend. So you can have a structured way of doing it, but you can also, going back to first principle, come up with creative ideas and add values to that. Yeah, I, I, I have to make a disclosure. Before deciding whether to do Engineering, I was torn between going and doing architecture or engineering. So I love to say that both sides of my brain are equally underdeveloped. (laughs) Um, So they they, they kind of, they compete for little space in in my brain. I met this person once who was saying his father was an architect and insisted that he and his brother not become architects. And one became an engineer and one became an artist. And they're like, so basically together we became an architect. (laughs) No, but it's interesting because I think engineering and architecture, it's like one of them makes everything stand up and is structural, and then the other things have to stand up, but they have this kind of beauty of structural design. I've just been thinking about it relative to our setting and this question of what makes business beautiful is like, how do you think about structural beauty, not just surface beauty, and what that means in a business context, whether the structure is the business model or the structure is the community of people, that's a question I've been asking myself in some of the 
talks that we heard this week. In one instance, there was this idea that if you make business more human, you're going to make business more beautiful hmm. because more human business is more beautiful. And I was asking myself, is that this is the right definition? At the same time, there was this discussion about aesthetic intelligence, which really struck a chord with me, which is about aesthetic intelligence is about understanding our senses influence us and lead us to decision and how we decide through senses. And it's not about beauty, uh, mm. which actually and I would have associated aesthetic intelligence with beauty, but the point made resonated a lot. And to go back to your point about design thinking, what I really like in that part is that it was said that actually we spend and invest a lot of money in designing features and products and we do not invest enough in really understanding how those things make us feel. Hmm. And this yeah. old feeling, this old sensorial component, I think this is going to be, for me, it's really one of the key takeaways of this week. It's going to be really this sensorial wave which is going to come, which is going to play a very important role because this is really an area where technology can do very, very, very little because yeah. it's about feeling. And yeah. that's by nature and by definition personal. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. And this is Pauline Brown's work on aesthetic intelligence, yeah. the book that's coming out. I'm really curious to read that. You're also making me think of a book by William Davies. I'm actually doing some graduate work with him right now on the side of my job. And Will has a book that came out recently called Nervous States that is about how we live in a political era of the death of rationalism because we cannot agree on what is analytically true or factual. And this is connected to all these conversations about filter bubbles. And, and what he's saying is that maybe there are other things that unite us that are about common feeling. And I think it's really interesting what you're saying about sense-making and feeling with regard to technology, but also with regard to democracy and governance and the way we all connect with each other. But actually, this is where art could help and <laughs> poetry could help. Sorry. Yes, I'm, I'm, yes. I'm, 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 no, but uh, uh, seriously, I think that this point about democracy is, is an important one. And actually, there is an interesting talk by Chris Kutarna where he basically says, let social media run amok because everything that destroyed needed to be resetted anyhow. And the problem that we have is not with the lies, but the problem is with the truth <laughs> and that we have basically made truth too simple so that you can basically produce your own truth because it's very easy to make simple statement instead of looking at the complexity in one's word, which is also related to what Mathieu Lefavre said on Sunday. Mm -hmm. I'm making this detour to make the point that actually poetry and art can play a very important role because poetry in particular really teaches you to understand and really put emphasis on the meaning of words and really mm -hmm. starting wording words and it really trains the brain to do it. I think T.S. Eliot said that uh, poetry keeps the tools of thought clean mm. or something something along these lines. I so I think that there is something in there that can really help us to train also the senses not to be deceived mm -hmm. um, by what is being are there yeah. and so on. So I think that there is Training the senses is a very important component. And again, this is not something, if you look, computer have a big problem with uh, um, uh, smelling. It's very difficult for computer to smell. But it makes perfect sense when you put it like that. <laughs> I would not expect computers to be good at smelling. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying, that we are an instrument and there are things that 
develop us, that maintain us, that, you know, keep us, our, our sensory apparatus clear and attuned. I just keep thinking about, as we're talking about art and science and business, I keep thinking about the story that's at the very beginning of the art thinking book. And it's there because my editor and my agent were like, you need to bump that up to the start. I, I don't, it's a whole other topic, how people argue intellectually in the current age and how much you have to include yourself and how much you're allowed to just talk about ideas and how that circulates with like identity and who you show up as in the world as well. But, but the story is that my parents were professors and my father was a medical researcher, neurologist who studied multiple sclerosis. My mother studied medieval literature and then taught grammar and composition. And someone asked him once how they got along being in such different fields. And he said, he was in the business of saving lives, but she was in the business of making lives worth saving. And the reason I loved that is that they actually did the opposite because my father helped people with you know, vulnerability, difficulty walking uh, because of neurological condition or debilitating headaches. Mm-hmm. And my mother taught people how to write in complete sentences I mean, kind of ruthlessly, if lovingly, like she can wield a red pen. But that is a life survival skill in many of the arenas we find ourselves in. And I think when you talk about poetry, I think of it as being really necessary. I like the idea of thinking of poetry. It doesn't have to be like life or death necessary, but it, but it is because it's like it's at the heart of kind of how we think and relate to the world. And I'm just wondering like, if you have favorite poems or moments with poems or passages from poems, like what goes through your head when you talk about business and poetry or? It doesn't go through my head. It goes through my heart. Yeah. That's the whole point of it. <laughs> is It's not what I make out of it. I don't try to make any meaning out of it. It's about what I feel. And it's totally subjective as I go through it. And it's uh, to go back to your parents. Actually, there is a nice quote. I'm going to misquote it, but the mean, I'm going to give you the meaning. I think it's Williams, Carlos Williams, um, saying that it's difficult to find news in poems, but basically people are, are dying because of what you cannot find in poems, what people are not finding in poems. So I think it relates a little bit to what you were, you were yeah. saying. When you are experiencing poetry, are you reading on a page or reading out loud or, because I feel like poetry has such a cadence. I have relationships with a few poems, none of which I can recount right now from memory, except my office is next to the British Museum in London this one semester currently. And one of my favorite pieces of the British Museum is that under the glass canopy in the marble floor of the courtyard, they have inlaid in some kind of metal in the marble, a Tennyson line that says, and let thy feet millenniums hence be set in midst of knowledge, which I think is the most beautiful part of the museum. With no disrespect to the Rosetta Stone, Rosetta Stone socks you can buy in the gift shop. Because that, for all the complexity of colonialism and war and looted objects and who owns them and how we interact with museums, and that's kind of the dream of a place like that. But I hear it in the cadence of poetry. Like I, I hear it in a way because it's like it's inlaid in the structure of, of language. I have to say I consume poetry just reading it internally by myself. But I have to say that when it is read loud, 
uh, it has a very different impact. I definitely do not read it loud myself. That's not the way I consume it. It's just more <laughs> absorbing it um, yeah. as you go through it. I'm with you. I'm just laughing because my one aunt is also a retired professor. So my grandparents, only one person. Highly academical. Yeah, only family. Yeah, academic family, the generation above me, and then the generation above them, almost no one was able to finish college. One person did who was a school teacher, but everyone else was like brilliant, you know, so smart, but did not have the privileges of education in the traditional sense. And um, my aunt, her field was the performance of poetry and the performance of literature. And we just always ended up in these comical situations growing up where she'd say, we're celebrating Christmas. Everyone, you know, bring a poem or something to read. And my sister and I like write this riff on Twas the Night Before Christmas. And then we have to go right after someone who like does Lear. It's like, <laughs> they just bring the house down with Lear. And then we're like, anyway, like now for something completely different. Um, but I, I grew up around like her friends reading poetry, often in very strong Southern accents. So I, yeah. I'm going back to work the day after tomorrow. Which piece of advice are you giving me to do more art thinking? I would love to answer that question. I also just want to say the three poems that are most in my mind right now are Jeffrey Skinner, A Guide to Forgetting, mm -hmm. which I, I can find if you don't have it. The um, Let Us Now Praise the Mutilated World, which is the poem that was published on the back page of The New Yorker the week after 9-11. It's by um, Yabievsky. I can't quite say it correctly he was in residence at a writer's residency I was at but it begins with the phrase try to praise the mutilated world and then I love this poem by Philip Levine called what work is which I feel like is so resonant to being in the workplace so the the core ideas of art thinking that someone can practice anytime are to orient to your whole life where you have an invitation to waste time to be present to things, to believe that everything has value. This is a horrible thing to say to someone who works in a management consulting firm where people tell you not to boil the ocean all the time and you live by, you know, 80-20 optimization of super smart people. That I'm always blown away by stories where things come back to help people that were in the periphery and that then become important. I'm telling one of these stories this afternoon. But then to focus on the question that actually matters to you, whether you can answer it or not. And to do it in a way where that question is the alternative asset allocation of your work portfolio. So you don't have to say, I'm just going to bet the house on this random speculative artistic question. To say that is to embrace the stereotype of the artistic genius as like incredibly irresponsible and mythic. You can say, I'm a whole person, I'm a messy whole person, I have practical and creative selves and ambiguity, and you know, need to be reading poetry, but I can hold space for this. I can hold space for this in the midst of my life. I find this to be true in, in my own case. In order to really risk that question, you often have to put a grace period around it to say, I don't have to figure this out for two weeks or four months or a year. So it's just like this little... That's why I say alternative asset allocation. It's like the thing where your friend has a company and you are able to invest a small amount of money or time or whatever it is to own shares. And it might go nowhere or it might go somewhere big and it doesn't matter. It just is what it is. So that's where I would start. I would start with this kind of sense of a question 
and a sense of a grace period and um, like conversation with other people about it. And do you think that you can come up with point B? I think that we live in a point B world already. We live in a constantly normalizing point B world. So we currently live in a world where people are afraid of what's getting normalized, like authoritarian politics, fake news. Those things are becoming more and more normal. But if you think back over the last 30 years, like people wear seatbelts. We take for granted the miracle of air travel. Gender politics are still complicated, but have radically changed the workplace. We are currently living in an era of like complex kind of breaking apart of like how people self-define around sex and gender. And even from a very young age, family structures are changing. So I, we're, we are all trying to figure out the point B world of climate, climate science. More the planet B than yeah, the exactly. point B. <laughs> But I'm curious, like along those lines, like when you look around, because you, I mean, you work for such an amazing firm, like BCG, you all see so much of, of what's going on in the world. Like, what do you see, what types of things do you see that are really stunning and amazing to you? What are the things that inspire you with a sense of progress? Well, that's not a small question. In which field more generally speaking? Or it could, or it could just be in any area of your life, but like, what's something where you're like, that's amazing. That's really, really cool. People tend to underestimate that we've made huge progress over the past years and it's very easy to come up and say, oh, it's everything is, you know, it's just about to explode or we are in the worst period of time. But at the same time, you can say you're in the best period of time. I think that it's part of the evolution of humanity. And there are really things where you can go and read commentary in the news back 100 years ago. You could basically swap them with today. And those things are happening again and again. So it's part of, you know, going back to the first principle, I think human nature is the same and it's going to be the same. Uh, it's just really the surroundings evolve over time. So in terms of what amazes me is just really what we've been able to achieve and what we're just about to achieve. If you ask me what amazes me is a kind of major transformation, which is just about to happen. And, and I think it's Susan Ickfield mentioned it or somebody else before her. But we're just about to move from what used to be the century of physics to the century of biology. And mm. this is going to have huge implication both at the societal, business and personal level. And the point is that really we're coming from basically from Descartes, but then Newton and this whole idea of cause and effect and all the physics mm. and this idea of if I do something, something else happens and you really can manage and steer things. And that's the way corporations are managed. That's the, whole. the world has changed a lot. And we have reached a level of complexity and organically interconnectedness that this thinking and applying physics to the world is, doesn't apply. So there is a lot of talking from thinking from linear to exponential. Mm -hmm. Actually, if you want, this is the, the next stage. It's not thinking about exponentially, but it's about thinking organically and really thinking in second, third order consequences, doing things indirectly versus directly and really reshaping the way the brain is functioning. And at the same time, the advancement on the biology side are amazing. So what is happening on the biotech side, on the gene side, on science and material sciences and so on, there is a lot going on there that is really, in my view, are going to really shape this century. And this transition is something that amazes me and excites me because it's a huge opportunity to rethink it. And we have 
at this morning that talks about capitalism and so on. And I think that capitalism, uh, it might sound like a, a big statement and I haven't thought it through. So I'm throwing out there, but I think that rethinking capitalism to be more organic mm -hmm. and less mechanic mm -hmm. uh, could be part of the solution in this transition. Yeah, I love that. I feel like capitalism or economics is based around a vector, right? A profit maximization yeah. vector. And that I think of it as, as a structure instead. Like you have to have a sustainable cost structure. But I love thinking another step beyond that, of thinking of it as an organic medium. It, it is. And, yeah. and if you look at things, if you look at society as an ecosystem, mm -hmm. every ecosystem lives and thrives exchanging currencies. Mm -hmm. And that's the big point. Mm -hmm. When we talk about currency... We think mostly about money, but actually if you look at an organic way, currencies, money is one of the currencies, but there are many other things. And this whole idea of stakeholder being involved and, and, and uh, the BRT talking about purpose and so on, this is just really nothing else to say. You need to take into consideration the different currencies and you need to maintain the overall ecosystem. You can only maximize. So the new philosophy is now I want to get the biggest slice of the pie mm -hmm. and the new philosophy should become, I want the pie to become as big as possible. Right, and right. retain the same. So this is a kind of a big shift that needs to happen, but it's really so ingrained in the way company and society thinks that this is going to be a major shift, but it excites me if we can bring us there. I love that. So how do you apply the idea of operating from first principles to that? Like, what do you think are the first principles of capitalism and of this kind of shift Okay, okay, let me take, I, I don't know, first principle <laughs> of capitalism, it's, I'm really, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know, I would, I would need to think about it, but I think I can take a smaller answer, which I think it's bigger at the same time, which I think that first principle goes back to what really makes us human. Mm -hmm. I think it's just really, that's what I said before, I think that humans and human behaviors are just the same as they were 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's just that the context has changed. So going back to that and really looking at the way those interactions are happening, I think it's quite important. Yeah. You know, it's just funny that one of my favorite sections of the art thinking book is called The Design Constraints of Capitalism. And it's like things that capitalism is like not good at. The way that if you're painting and you paint in watercolor, watercolor is not good at being forgiving. Like if you mess something up at the last minute, you can't really undo it unless you have really thick paper and you can put it under a sink. And oil paint is very forgiving, but it's layered and laborious and slow drying. And, and I think capitalism has strengths and weaknesses in the same way. And I, I would say, and I think about this a lot uh, because I sometimes teach business to artists and designers, so I try to teach it as a design medium. And I think the first principle of economics is that price equals value, that price is a reliable descriptor of value. And the first principle of finance is that risk and return travel together. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that or not like from an engineering standpoint. Uh, I, I keep on answering other questions. But, uh, <laughs> when are you running for political office? You're very good at it. <laughs> uh, no, but the point is, I think you made an important point about the vector maximization. And I think if you ask me what excites me is these opportunities with uh, the organic shift. On the other side, what scares me is this focus on vector maximization. Capitalism is one side, but if you go one level below, is that we're bringing a lot of AI Mm -hmm. into the, the game. And the core point is that 
that's pure math. It's just really about maximizing and maximizing mm. function. That's the way AI works. And uh, it's not taking into consideration the additional dimensions. So similar to what we're discussing about capitalism, you, you need to have different currencies. Also there, the checks and balances and really making sure that you have a thorough sound process to optimize the function, but considering the additional dimensions, I think it's going to be particularly important. A colleague of mine has basically pointed out, it's Sylvain Duranton who gave a fantastic TED talk about the idea that the irony is that we are now going through and trying to really make companies agile and let people decide and so on and we want to fight bureaucracy but what we're doing in many places is that we're replacing bureaucracy with what he calls algocracy. So hmm. we have basically algorithm calling the shots on many things based on very clearly defined rules. And this is a bit of the problematic and the way you need to look at yeah. it. I think a lot of these are such big questions of the governance over technology. I do some research on blockchain as related to fractional equity, and it's so hard to think through governance of currencies. And there's a guy who also teaches at NYU named Joseph Bono who studies the randomness like blockchain looks like this highly systematic decentralized database incentivized by you know mining and it's all of those things but there also are puzzles people solve to verify the blockchain record and they require the generation of a random number as a starting point and like it's really poetic how you generate a random number RSA and, RSA 256 yeah the the SHA 256 and the I, it's, it means, oh, sorry. What? Sorry? That's, yeah. I, I, uh, the, they, the, I had the number right, not the name. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It's like, it's uh, all of the above. But it's interesting because when he, when he talks, he's such a rigorous scientist, he actually sounds like a poet when he speaks because he says, you know, how do you come up with randomness that can't be gamed? And they're, literally, there are people who do it with a lava lamp. So they like, it's based on the the way that the whatever the substance is that's suspended in a lava lamp, strangely not expert. I, I lack language for lava lamps, but it's based on that or it's based on certain things about the temperature or the time of day. But what's interesting is that like human beings tend to prefer forms of randomness that are actually not reliable. Like we love watching the lottery where they put all the balls in the cage and then they like wind it around and choose one, but you can easily weight one of the balls but it, like it's so satisfying visually to watch. So I just been I don't know. It's it's interesting like what you're saying about that and this kind of I feel like this happens a lot though in business where the you know a spreadsheet looks heuristically really true, but there's like one number in it that's completely made up and that is a judgment call. It's often the discount rate if we're talking about a finance <laughs> spreadsheet. We're like yeah, I totally know what the market's going to return going forward based on the past, which we all, I think we all begrudgingly admit is not true. Like um, or you know this relationship of this rate to that rate or this number to that number is based on an efficient market hypothesis, and you're like yeah, that's that's not true. <laughs> it's a great in null hypothesis, but. We're, we're at time, so I don't know, do you want to close us out with something, some artistic observation or? No, that, only that I'm going to read the book now. <laughs> well, I'll say I am completely stunned and amazed by the dignity of research scientists who can spend a whole career answering a question that's so important and not yet able to find the answer, but kind of loosening the lid of the jar for the rest of us. So thank you. You're welcome. 
Wow. Uh, you know what is so interesting about these conversations? When two strangers meet in a room for the first time, and I think they have to find their roles, right? And I think what we're observing with this episode here is also just that, you know, I think one person, and that's probably natural, then naturally gravitates towards becoming the the interviewer or the, the yes, host? Yes, somehow, somehow. You said we don't have a moderator, which is true, in fact, but it felt like Massim was, was more in the moderating role somehow. And I was a little bit surprised because a partner of Boston Consulting, top management consulting, I would have expected more contradiction. But this is also the beauty, I guess, about this talks, figuring out how this dynamics work and what their perspective is. So art and business, uh, let's do a bit of a reality check here. We had mentioned this before that design thinking has become a thing, is now widely embraced by corporates. Art thinking is a whole different story, right? The idea to bring art into business or to learn from artists, especially regarding innovation in a corporate environment. So how difficult is it and how applicable are some of these ideas that Massimo and Amy talked about to you, Christian, and to Porsche? Well, I have to say, I guess, Art and innovation is not so far away in my perspective. So there's a wonderful example that shows, for example, if you drive change, there's a very good example that's coming from uh, ballet, actually. Sounds strange, but that's a fact. So uh, think about 1913, you are in Paris, the richest people, the most beautiful people are sitting in a room. It's the premiere where Stravinsky is showing his Rite of Spring. Uh, so Nijinsky is doing the choreography, it's the Ballerus. So it's really the creme de la creme is presenting and everyone has high expectations. And then it starts with the first tone and it got very outrageous. So the audience completely freaked out and almost burned down the theater in Paris. So what happened actually? It was a revolution in the style, how it was presented. The music was different and it challenged the status quo. There was then a second play afterwards and the people got adjusted and said, this is super amazing. This is great. And this is exactly how innovation works as well. It's not always when you come through the door, not everyone welcomes you in the beginning. So challenging the status quo is, of course, getting out of the comfort zone. That is something you can pretty much learn from that example because this is how art works as well. So every new stream challenges the status quo. If you think about Picasso, for example, what is he doing? It's not precise, what he's imagining, etc. And the other thing is, for example, also if you talk to painters, it's not that they think all the time. It's more an expression, what they feel. So they don't think with everything they do, but they create something beautiful in the end. And that is something we can definitely learn from that context. Uh, interesting about the what you said about Stravinsky and also the art being ridiculed, right? Or, I mean, art can always be ridiculous, right? So people are like, it can be crazy, it can be outrageous because it's outside of the conventions. And and I, I someone once told me and said that if, if you have an idea or an innovation that people cannot make fun of, then it's not really radical. In fact, many ideas started as jokes. Many good ideas start as jokes. Like, what if we rented our home to strangers? You know, to the internet. <laughs> I mean, people laughed at the yeah. Airbnb founders when they the investors were laughing at them. And yeah. I think it's interesting to think about that. And then, but how hard is it, though? I mean, there's so much bureaucracy and there's so much uh, risk mitigation going on in corporations, isn't it? I always try to bring it to myself when I think about these kind of things. So Because it's always easy to blame 
others or setup or an organization is a neutral thing for me. And there's actually a wonderful example to reflect that. Because when you think about bureaucracy, it's something that is emerging. And if you want to create an innovation culture, sometimes the best way to achieve something is to think about what is the complete opposite of that. And there's a beautiful example for that because yeah, at least there was an organization who has created a manual for that. So it's really a true story. Um, in the Second World War, there was the OSS, was the predecessor of the CIA. And they created a handbook of sabotage. They sent out spies to Germany to sabotage the entire government. And some of the rules are really ridiculous if you just read through it. So, for example, rule number one is if you want to discuss something, you create a steering committee. Rule number two is make it as big as you can. Number three is never decide something and postpone it to a further steering committee. Number four is, for example, discuss definitions, something that Germans can do pretty well. So if you look at these rules, you sometimes recognize yourself in situations. For example, also as a leader, for example, sometimes when people approach me and I think, ah, wait a second, we need to align that, we need to define that. I think myself, oh my God, I'm a spy. And that's, I think, the beauty about this handbook of sabotage. If you read through it, it's not only to project it to an organization and say, oh, this is very stupid how we act. It's more like reflecting for yourself and thinking about if you are a spy in this moment. And that is, for me, the mission working with bureaucracy is basically you shape this by yourself. And you, you as an individual can shape this by yourself. Yeah, no, that, I can certainly relate to that. Having worked also for creative firms, you know, we often play the role of being like these agent provocateurs, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, disrupting the processes. And often we were hired just to do that. It wasn't even the service itself. It was just the attitude and the mindset, you know, the moment of disruption that we brought into a corporate environment. Poetry, Massimo gave a session with Claire Morgan at the house about poetry and business and just on the first day. And some people begin their meetings with poems. And she was sort of saying, Claire Morgan was saying that if you do that, it changes the tone of the conversation. It changes the meeting completely. Mm-hmm. Have you ever tried that? Or do you think that could be possible at Porsche to start a meeting with a poem? Okay, that's an interesting question. I think we have something different that is maybe a poem or feels like a poem, to be honest, because a lot of presentations start with quotes or end with quotes of a founder. And for example, there's this fantastic saying like, uh, we are a brand that nobody needs, but everybody wants. Or for example, in the beginning, I looked around and could not quite find the car I dreamed of. So I decided to build it myself. So these are cited like poems and they feel sometimes a little bit like poems. And the last quote is something where you can interpret a lot into it. Maybe also to come back what you said in the beginning about art is the beauty what I think is there is no one interpretation of that where you have other situations where you have a clear definition somehow in arts it's very interesting that no one is sitting next to a picture and saying the interpretation of this picture is this and that so the real beauty of art is really to leave it open to the eye of the beholder and then you have different interpretation someone is touched someone is angry etc and this makes it individual and somehow makes us human as well 
Yeah, I mean, dealing with ambiguity and the idea that there are always many different interpretations possible, that's very much also what leaders are confronted with. And those are topics we'll discuss in other episodes of this series. Um, what mm -hmm. does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a leader in the face of exponential change and artificial intelligence? So you have more to look forward to. If uh, you want to listen to further episodes with more residents of the House of Beautiful Business, you just go to one of the usual platforms, the one where you found this one. And please comment, give us feedback, criticize, like things. And uh, all that's left to say for this episode is, Christian, that was beautiful. Thank you so much, Tim. <laughs>